Well, today we have a really special guest. I've been looking forward to this podcast for um, quite some time, and I'm just really grateful that my friend, Dr. Christina Cleveland, is with us today. She is a social psychologist, a theologian, an author. She's a professor at Duke University Divinity School. Uh, She authored a really amazing book called Disunity in Christ, Uncovering the Hidden Forces That Keep Us Apart. She's just a really brilliant, amazing woman, and I'm just really glad you're here with us today, Christina. Hi. I, I love your work in social justice, and I love how... You know, you've you've really created a lot of cultural change and you've opened up a lot of Christians to to thinking in a broader context and not just looking at their own little life, their own little church, um, but thinking about how they can be part of change in the world and to do so without losing hope. And for me, especially Christina, you know, being a person who has been on the front lines of social justice around the world and with all different races, talking about sexual abuse and human trafficking. You know, it's it's a hard work and it can get you, you know, sometimes you can feel hopeless because there's so much pain out there and, and you don't know if there's going to be good change and all of that. So I really want to hear from you a little bit about your story, how you begin to care about this stuff, but also just how can we engage in social justice and effective advocacy that creates a real change in our world? Hmm, that's a huge <laughs> question, but thank you, but thank you for asking it. Um, well, I, I think my, my journey into social justice uh, began when I was in the womb. My mom says I was born with a heart for social justice. <laughs> she claims. <laughs> I know for a fact that my first sit-in that I um, orchestrated was when I was in first grade, so I basically was always noticing people on the margins and um, a girl joined my class partway through the year and she was sight impaired and we had been playing kickball every day at lunch as a class. And when I, she arrived, I noticed that she couldn't play kickball. It wasn't an inclusive game. And so I like forced all of my um, classmates to sit down and line up against the side of the school and we like I basically shut down recess and said until we can come up with an inclusive game um, nobody's going to play kickball and so I guess you know my mom's right in the sense that for whatever reason I've always had an eye and an ear and a heart kind of turned towards um, folks that are on the margins whatever the margins are in that moment but I think um, my my journey into really addressing um, the the way that the church interacts with social justice mm-hmm. and race and class and gender in particular began when I was in my late 20s because I had gotten a PhD in social psychology. I had started an academic position at a school just like I was like trained to do and was expected to do. But I actually started my first my first job, my, the beginning of my career was at Westmont College, which is a, a evangelical Christian college in Santa Barbara. And I had never experienced um, evangelical higher ed because I didn't ever go to Christian school. Mm-hmm. And um, as a black person who spent a lot of time in black churches, I didn't even really have a lot of experience with evangelicalism. I just heard that the school was Christian. And so I was like, oh, it'll probably be great. I'm Christian. They're Christian. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't I like it there? Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right, and I was right. the only African-American faculty member. Oh, wow. I was the youngest faculty member. I was one of maybe like 20% tenure track female faculty. Mm. 
I was single, which also was like a crime in that community. Um, and so <laughs> in so many ways, I was kind of on the outs, mm. you know, and I, and I was so confused. I was confused and it was really painful because I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't understand. And I also didn't have tools and a community to support me. Mm. Um, and so I just remember thinking, okay, wait, all these people claim to be Christian. They, they're sort of nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, in like an individualistic face. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But sort of, but systemically, this is a horribly marginalizing and dehumanizing place for me. Wow. But I didn't have the language for that. I just felt terrible all the time and mm-hmm. insufficient mm-hmm. and scared and unsupported and misunderstood. Um, and, but then on the flip side, I had just finished this PhD on group processes. And so I was like, why don't I think about trying to use all this stuff I learned as a graduate student to understand what's going on here where these people are like, these white people are claiming that they like me, but I don't feel liked. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so that was the beginning for me of turning all my academic preparation and expertise towards the church. And that actually, and that was sort of, yeah, so it was like the late Mm -hmm. aughts. And that Mm -hmm. turned out to be a great time because there were so many um, theologians and other people who had, I come from earlier generations, like Brenda Salter McNeil and other voices who had sort of paved the way and said, Hey, people need to start caring about this. And then I was able to come in as a social psychologist and say, okay, for those of you who do care, here's how to think differently and offer kind of the tools. And I wouldn't have been able to be as effective and be as well received as I was if I, if those earlier folks hadn't sort of biblically paved the way for why people should care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's still so real today, just where it comes from, like justice and reconciliation. I know that's such a huge part of your processing and, and, you know, teaching people how to integrate both. And it's interesting to me, you know, coming Mm -hmm. from even the vineyard tradition of both and it's so it's so real how you need both sides. And so you can have someone who, you know, is a social psychologist and a theologian and and doing justice and fighting social justice and being an activist um, in sort of a more holistic picture. Yeah, I mean, and what's interesting is the longer I've been on this journey, the more theology becomes important to me. Because, you know, you mentioned, you know, how do we face how, you know, how do we face the constant onslaught of injustice? And when we do decide to turn towards injustice and like take off our blinders, stop trying to numb ourselves, actually get in the trenches and connect with people who experience the world in much more oppressive and devastating ways than we do, Mm -hmm. that is incredibly painful and disillusioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've, I've found that it's theology that's helped fortify me (laughs) Mm. Um, and my theology of the cross and my theology of the resurrection had to become more nourished in order for me to continue turning toward this pain. Otherwise, I mean, I would just, you know, people, people often ask me, they're like, so where do you see hope in the world? And I'm like, I don't really, you know, like (laughs) Mm -hmm. if I, if I just, if I just, if all of my hope was dependent on what I see, I would be in trouble. No doubt. Right. No (laughs) doubt. Because I see a lot of terrible things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we have to have something outside of us to bring that hope in and keep us moving. 
Totally. Yeah. And one thing that I, that has helped me so much is recognizing that, you know, the cross and the resurrection, and I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian theologian. And so my, so much of my theology is, you know, centered on the cross and resurrection. You know, the cross and the resurrection, they have to go hand in hand. Mm. They, they can't be separated from each other. And so when I see the pain, the blood, the death, the destruction, I know that there's a liturgical promise that the resurrection is coming Mm. because there can't be a cross without the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And it's really been learning to listen to theologians outside of the Western white world that I have been exposed, overexposed to that helps me to see that it's the theologians who are actually um, facing hopelessness all the time Mm -hmm. who have, who have really developed these robust theologies around, around, around hope. And so it's kind of like listening less to the individualistic folks that, yeah. you know, I may have been exposed to more and listening more to people outside the U.S. or mm-hmm. folks in the U.S. who are writing from different perspectives. Like I read a lot of Latinx feminist theology, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. what are what are undocumented women experiencing as they connect with God? Mm-hmm. Um that's and really that's good. What, that's been that's a lot of me. that's been a lot of my journey too as of late and probably the last decade um is just listening to other voices and that's been really instrumental I think in my spiritual growth but also as a social justice advocate. I mean, it we have to listen to others, you know, from different tables to understand, you know, where we came from and where we're going. And but I felt that that's I I get a lot of anger, though, because now that I feel a lot more solid in my own faith and where I'm going, um, I look back and I and I'm seeing a lot of others who are still stuck and only listening to this very narrow voice, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so um and then that's where it's it's caused a lot of conflict and a, a lot of division among Christians, even who um, uh, are, are survivors of sexual abuse, you know. And so they look at mm-hmm. things like social justice or the Me Too movement or mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter as something that is um, threatening to them. <laughs> when that mm-hmm. now that I'm outside mm-hmm. of that picture, it's been really hard for me to. Um, I guess, kind of comfort them and see hope there. It just makes me mad. (laughs) So what do you do when it comes to stuff like that? You know, I I always come back to, you know, Martin Luther King's injustice anywhere is a threat to to justice everywhere. And for working towards Mm -hmm. equality and reconciliation and hope, which I believe are all parts of of Jesus doing on, on this earth and what he wants us to work towards, you know, how do we bring others in the church alongside us? How do we help them understand that and, and to practice it and to, to shake that up without, you know, causing more division? That I think that's my struggle right now. I'm wondering, well, what do you do? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, well, I think one thing I do is try to cultivate compassion in my heart towards those folks mm-hmm. and also cultivate, I guess, just just a, an accurate perception of their power. Yeah. So let me let me explain. So actually, I'm working, I'm revising my book on power right now, and I am um, adding some personal stories because my editor is like, it's too academic. 
you need to add more personal stories. Mm. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing, which is actually helpful because it's forcing me, it's, it's helping me to remember um, the many, 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 many times I was the ignorant defensive one. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and people have been really um, generous and hospitable towards me and continued to share their perspective with me mm-hmm. until I eventually woke up. And so that's, that, that's reminded me of a practice that I have where I kind of, you know, as I'm approaching folks who are further behind on this particular journey, although I think we're, you know, none of us are woke in every area. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're all kind of awakening. Mm-hmm. But maybe in areas where I've done a little bit more work, I try to remind myself of, oh, my gosh, like, I remember when I was the person spouting yeah. these, like, ignorant platitudes. Mm-hmm. Judgment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and when I was scared, you know, um, yeah, scared okay. about the unknown and the mm-hmm. possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm able to cultivate that compassion, I am better able to choose which situations and interactions I want to have with folks in that space. And when it's good for me out of self-care to connect with people who can affirm where I currently am. Okay. So I think that having that compassion um, sort of uh, empowers me to be a lot more thoughtful about going back in to those mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also when I do go back in, I can go and um, with compassion, tell my story. Okay. And my story is I can relate to your fear because mm-hmm. I have experienced it. Mm-hmm. I can relate to your questions mm-hmm. because they were my questions too. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you how I can relate. And then let me tell you about what was the catalyst for me, mm-hmm. whether it was a relationship that I forged with someone, whether it was information that I received in a class, mm-hmm. whether it was like, come to Jesus moment, you know, (laughs) like whatever it is, let me show you how I got from where you are, which is totally human to where I'm going. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to invite you along. And sometimes those, I mean, those conversations can last years. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, it is a journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like just realizing, hey, this isn't the first conversation. This is the last conversation. Everything doesn't have to get said right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everything doesn't have to be like tidy. And and that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that I was talking about when I was saying like, it's helpful for me to remember that like what they're doing, whoever they are, is not as crucial as what God is doing. Yeah. And so, yes, I want to bring people along. But I don't need them in order to mm. do this work. Mm-hmm. I need God. Yeah. Yeah. And know? I get that. Um, I just sometimes just I mm-hmm. want people to be awake. And it's oh, hard totally. for Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like, especially as someone who has been a victim of injustice and mm-hmm. in talking to mm-hmm. other victims, that they can still feel threatened um, mm-hmm. by the, uh, by the idea of equality or, um, mm-hmm. you know, or just hearing from the marginalized and, and, and pushing them out. I think that's just, it, it's hard for me to, I want them to stand with people that don't look like them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. 
So I guess for me, it's like I've always seen Jesus as someone who would come into a room and would say, you know, I'm going to use my voice to amplify other voices. I'm going to I'm going to use my mm. voice to to bring um, awareness to what this person who you've overlooked um, is saying. Right. And so mm. when we talk about sexual abuse survivors, um, mm. when we talk about like the R. Kelly stuff and these black women whose mm-hmm. stories and voices have not mattered and they've even been mm-hmm. brought to the, into the spotlight and our culture has said that they don't matter. That's where I have a problem. And, um, you know, protecting the white men in our churches that I have mm-hmm. a problem with. And I want to flip tables and, and get the church to see these marginalized voices, especially survivor women of color that I feel mm-hmm. like they of all people have been silenced. And, you know, how can we get white girl survivors to amplify the voices of the black women who've been raped. I don't know the answer to that, um, but I do feel like there there has to be a point where we're learning that, where we're learning how to hear from others that um, have been marginalized and they need to be prioritized. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think definitely it's one of those like this is a long distance marathon you know mm-hmm. yeah. because you're working against so many forces mm-hmm. like i mean you're working against the forces of whiteness and white feminism mm-hmm. and this idea that in order to be a white woman who cares about gender equality um you don't have to think at all about people who don't look exactly like you um, mm-hmm. and how people are shaped in that, even the so-called like progressive or liberal people. But then you're also working against the forces of Christianity in a lot of spaces where, you know, you just said, Jesus, um, you know, Jesus was caring about the folks on the margins. Yeah, actually, most people don't learn that in church. <laughs> you know, like right, Jesus right. is a white guy. Jesus is a powerful white guy who mm-hmm. cares about powerful white people. Mm-hmm perspective. That's what's taught in church. Now, now, I mean, that's what's at least implicitly taught and in some spaces explicitly taught. And so I think. And that's what I feel like it's coming up against Mm -hmm. is that teaching. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's creating such a a problem in our society and it's hurtful. It's, it's, it's creating people to be more left out and a bigger power, you know, struggle mm-hmm. i loved and Christine. it's creating a space for like white christians to think that they're being faithful mm. while mm-hmm. simultaneously being racist and sexist and classist and that's, you know. it. that's it and you know mm-hmm. one thing that i heard you share one time was your perspective on the story of the woman who'd been bleeding um mm-hmm. on the way when jesus was walking on his way to meet jairus the white man whose daughter was was dying i would love for you to tell that story because that brings me so so much hope and speaks yeah. a lot to the privileged um ideology that i feel like i come across so much that hurts me mm-hmm. would you mind sharing that yeah. story Sure. I would love to. You know, it's so funny because I, I spoke at a um, actually the first time I've ever spoken at a at a gala. Um, but it was this like big gala in Chicago last October. And I shared that story 
and which I'll share in a moment here. And what's interesting is a white guy, and this is like mostly, you know, it's like a fundraiser. So it's like mostly wealthy white Chicago people. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy came up to me with tears in his eyes afterwards and was like, I've never heard anyone talk about Jesus that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was like 40. Yeah. You know, he was just like, why don't we talk about Jesus that way? Right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's literally the problem of how we're discipled. You know, it's really a failure of discipleship because mm-hmm. um, here in the United States, Jesus has been associated with like the white male power structure. Yeah. Um, but in this story and in every, so the, the reason why I even discovered this way of thinking about Jesus is because I thought, why don't I go through scripture, all of the gospels, story by story, and look to see how Jesus is noticing the social situation and the power dynamic Mm, mm -hmm. around him. Mm -hmm. And what is he doing? You know, because I'm trying, I was trying to figure out what do I do as a person who has like some power and some platform and some opportunities? You know, how do I, how do I practice the way of Jesus? And I was like, well, why don't I just look to see what Jesus did (laughs) in this way? And if you, and, and like what I discovered is that Jesus was basically a social psychologist. Jesus in every single situation gave some indication that he understood who had power and who didn't, who had a voice and who didn't, who, whose perspective mattered and who didn't, who got protected by the power establishment and who was often left out on their own and not believed and not heard. And so what's interesting about this story is that Jesus is up until this point in his ministry has only dealt with poor people, women, marginalized people, lepers, homeless people. And so it's interesting that he's in this crowd surrounded by probably thousands of sort of marginalized folks, the kind of people that most important people in that society wouldn't want to have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden Jairus comes because Jairus is Jairus's entree into this is interesting because it's the first time that kind of a, an important person, a celebrity, a privileged person, someone who's not doesn't seem desperate (laughs) Mm -hmm. is coming to Jesus. Cause Jesus was like totally the like people's Messiah, you know, Mm -hmm. like he wasn't, he wasn't formally educated. He came from Nazareth. Like the establishment was kind of like, who is this like riffraff? Mm -hmm. Um, But Jairus had a real need. Jairus had, he was a powerful person with lots of resources, but just because we're powerful with lots of resources doesn't mean that we don't have problems. <laughs> and Jairus had a problem that he couldn't solve. His mm-hmm. child was sick. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like any good parent who cared about their kid, he had already tried everything, mm-hmm. right? He had paid for all the fancy doctors. He had done all the sacrifices in the, in the, in the temple in order to get healing. He had prayed all the prayers. He had done everything within his means. But that's just the, the, the fact of the matter is power and resources and privilege don't solve everything. They solve a lot of things, mm-hmm. but they don't solve everything. And so here we see Jairus humbling himself, really. Right? He's taking a step to connect with Jesus and connect with these. Uh, and I, I imagine him walking through this crowd <laughs> of smelly, dirty, probably not super physically attractive, put together folks, mm-hmm. many of whom were probably considered unclean and mm-hmm. it wouldn't even be like 
sort of kosher for him to go in and be around them. But I can just imagine him going through this crowd of people, this throng who are trying to talk to Jesus for the first time, experiencing a world outside of his world. It's unbelievable. And he makes his way to Jesus and says, will you help me? He humbles himself. He says, hey, you're not someone that my people would turn to, but I'm desperate. And Jesus is awesome, as usual. And it's like, for sure, I'll come, I'll help you. But what's interesting is as he's walking to Jairus' house, oh my gosh, this woman comes out of nowhere and touches the hem of Jesus' coat. And what's fascinating to me is all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell this story And they all tell it exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. This woman touched Jesus's clothes. She was immediately healed. Jesus knew it because it says Jesus felt the power go out of her, go go out of him and into her and heal her. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, all right, great. This is done. Jesus has another task at hand to go heal this important important (laughs) person's child. You're healed. You're healed. You're healed. (laughs) Keep it moving. Yeah. I mean, everybody's healed. Not a big deal. Yeah. Let's keep it moving. (laughs) Right. Let's keep it moving. But But Mm -mm. Jesus stops. And this is why I'm like, he must have been a social psychologist because (laughs) I'm like asking how, why would Jesus stop? He knew she was healed. She knew she was healed. There are other things to be done, but Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? Mm -hmm. Which is such an interesting question. Who touched me? Because even his disciples were like, that is literally the dumbest question ever. (laughs) Thousands of people are touching you. Like why? But it's like, why would Jesus ask that question? What's neat is then the woman gets, it says in the gospel, then the woman got to tell her story. Mm. And so by asking who touched me, Jesus is taking the spotlight off of him and Jairus, the two most important, powerful people in that space, and putting it on this woman. He hands her the mic. Who touched me? And she gets to tell her story. And I love the way Mark says it. He says she got to tell her truth, her whole truth, Mm. (laughs) which I'm like, whoo, this woman is a woman of color, right? She's a Middle Eastern Mm -hmm. woman living on the margins, probably been homeless for years, definitely been kicked out of her home because Jewish tradition said that, hey, if you're, if you're sick in the way that this lady's been sick, it means you're, you're theologically, spiritually unclean. She probably looked sick, Mm -hmm. right? She probably looked haggard and ragged. Mm -hmm. She probably didn't smell good. She probably didn't have a formal education that helped her create a TED Talk style presentation (laughs) on what her truth was, right? Like it was probably not a coherent (laughs) truth. It was probably not uh, a practiced <laughs> truth. It was probably, she was probably cursing and telling, telling on people mm-hmm. <laughs> and talking about what she's seen. The whole truth. <laughs> the whole truth. This is what it's like. Let me tell you what it's like. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting is um, I'm friends with the, they're called housekeepers because Duke is a lot like a plantation, but they're really custodians, but literally their job title is housekeepers. Mm-hmm. And at Duke, all of the housekeepers are black which is another problem. Sure. I'm friendly with all of the, with all the housekeepers. And the um, last time I was on campus, I was talking with, with one of them and they, she was telling me, you know, between the four of us, there's like something like 57 years mm-hmm. of work. Uh, we worked here for 57 years mm-hmm. at Duke Divinity School. And she said, Oh, the stories I could tell you. Oh. Ooh. Yeah. She said, let me tell you one thing. There's not a lot of divinity 
mm-hmm. here at Duke Divinity School. Mm-hmm. And so I, when, I, when I think about this woman telling her whole truth, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's precisely the people who are on the margins who see everything. Yeah. Who know how society really works. Right. Who knows who's legit and who's not. Mm-hmm. Who knows who's trustworthy and who's not. Who's really a follower of God and who's not, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, this woman's preaching. Sure. <laughs> and she's also telling her story of healing. Mm-hmm. And it's like this beautiful, transformative moment where the power dynamics completely shifted. This woman who probably up until this point wasn't even allowed in the temple now gets to share the gospel. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Jairus is a recipient of that gospel. He's not the leader. He's not the most powerful person. He's not the speaker. He is in the audience of what this, of what this woman is saying. And what's so interesting to me is there's, I scoured like all the interpretations of this passage, all the commentary, all of the um, historical evidence. And there's no proof. There's no evidence that Jairus did anything other than simply listen to this woman tell her whole truth, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me because he could have easily stepped in yeah. as a powerful person right. and been like, all right, Jesus, okay, so glad you healed her. Now let's keep going. Mm-hmm. Or he could have easily stepped in and said, um, you know what? This is making me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's a good chance that she was pointing out injustices that Jairus was responsible for, yeah. or at least, participated in (laughs) so he could have just been like you know what i don't like her tone yeah yeah (laughs) i don't like her tone she sounds kind of angry she sounds kind of bitter i feel like she's making accusations and i don't have a chance to defend myself Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like what powerful people do right and jairus doesn't do that Mm -hmm. he sits there and he listens to her truth Mm -hmm. meanwhile He's holding his own pain, which is so powerful to me. Mm -hmm. He has his own urgency. He has his own pain. He has his own crisis. And I feel like as someone who has been shaped by power, more often than not, whatever my crisis is, is always more important than the people around me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's easy for me to step in and be like, you know what, let's circle back to you once I get my needs met. (laughs) And usually there aren't sanctions in society, right? So you were talking earlier about how a lot of white women who've been um, survivors Mm -hmm. and victims Mm -hmm. have a hard time listening to other people, particularly women of color's stories. And usually it's because in our world, it's like, well, hey, uh, this doesn't pertain to me specifically, or this isn't meeting my needs right now. And so therefore, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to just shut the conversation down. I'm going to get up and walk away. I'm going to call you a heretic. I'm going to pull some sort of power card. Um, and, and usually we say it's because, you know, we have our own problems. Yeah. And it's, it's like Cyrus has his own problem. What about me? Yeah. Exactly. Or what about my white but son? What about me? <laughs> I don't want my white mm-hmm. son to be falsely accused. Even though I can relate to your abuse. I'm thinking about mm-hmm. my life and my family and my people. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, exactly. And you know, what's so interesting is one of my, um, 
one of my research assistants and I have been doing this survey of people in power and who claim to care about justice and what they're actually practicing. So, you know, we talked to them and we're like, so you believe that, you know, survivors should be believed, for example. Um, what stops you from always believing survivors? Mm-hmm. And that's actually the response we get. But what about my son? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to believe that. But what about my son? Or, yeah, I really believe that all people should be able to go to college if they want to. But, like, what happens if my kids apply to college and then, like, a black kid from an urban center gets in over them? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, I really, really, really want women to be able to be pastors Mm. or like leaders in our denomination, mm-hmm. but like also when I get ready to become a leader in the denomination, like I don't want to lose my spot <laughs> to a woman. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's that what about me? Yeah. Like it's the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. And somehow Jairus was able to hold, hold space for his pain while also opening himself up to the pain of this woman. Without getting defensive, Mm. without shutting it down, without moving it along. But what's amazing, his worst nightmare comes true, right? If every privileged person's worst nightmare is what about me? (laughs) Right. Then his worst nightmare actually came true because his servants came to him and they were like, yeah, see, it took too long. Mm -hmm. Your child's dead. Yeah. And I just think, gosh, when we have a theology of scarcity, right, what are the thoughts that could have been going through his mind? Like, see, it's true. There isn't enough Jesus for all of us. Mm. See, it's true. There isn't enough resources for all of us. It's true. There isn't enough power for all of us. I should have held on to my power when I had a chance. Mm. I should have held on to the mic when I had a chance. I should have held on to my money when I had a chance because, see, I took a risk. And look what happened. I got burned. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. His worst nightmare comes true. Yet somehow Jesus looks at him and says, just believe. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how could he possibly just believe after all of his hope has been dashed, after he's already done the unthinkable and humbled himself and gone into this crowd of riffraff, humbled himself before this Messiah from Nazareth, said, hey, I need you. And then this person does not come through. Jesus does not come through in his moment of need. But Jesus says, just believe. And somehow Jairus is able to believe. Mm-hmm. And my, my theology of the Trinity helps me to understand this. It's like, well, if we're created in the image of this interdependent, relational, mutual God, then of course we're interdependent, relational, mutual people. And we're at our best when we're doing, when we're practicing that. And because Jairus was able to hear this woman's truth and receive it, he was fortified to just believe when Jesus asked him to. Mm. I'm, I'm certain that there's no way that Jairus could have believed if he hadn't heard this woman's truth mm. about the world, about being healed by Jesus, mm. about being you know, 12 years of faith and it finally coming to fruition, that all fortified and nourished 
gyrus. And we're, the, we're, we're, we need to be in that interdependence, right? So white women who are sex trafficking survivors and victims and victims of um, rape and other forms of sexual assault, their healing is connected to hearing the truth of women of color wow. and receiving that truth and being altered by that truth. Yeah. Their pain that they're holding mm-hmm. is never going to be healed independently from hearing the truth mm. of others. That is so Because true. we're interconnected. We're just like the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as a white woman myself, um, who thinks she's not, but that's another story. I really, <laughs> I understand what silence feels like, but hearing a Latino woman talk about the cultural silence that she's lived under or a black woman saying how generational this sexual abuse has been in her family. That Mm -hmm. is like, whoa, that is a depth of silence that I didn't even know. And you're right. It has played a role in my own healing. Yeah. And it's like, it's so powerful to see, you know, how this story ends, mm. which is Jairus fortified and nourished by this woman's truth, mm. going home and finding that he didn't have to have a theology of scarcity uh-huh. because God's power and love and justice is abundant. Yeah. There's enough power for all of us. Mm-hmm. And when we, the people who have power, let go of our power so that we can hear other people's voices, not only are we healed, but we also set ourselves up to experience the miracles, even greater miracles. Mm-hmm. And to be human, to be part of this human story, you know, I mean, the, yeah. literally, the average human being on earth right now is a woman of color living in the global global South who every single day faces poverty and some form of violence, whether it's sexual violence, sectarian violence, domestic violence. And so if we aren't listening to those stories, if we aren't participating in the healing of us all, we aren't even connected to the human experience Mm. right now. It makes us human. Well, and if we're followers of Jesus, we're called to be that flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to enter into the darkness as as light, and that requires us to to be flesh, you know, amongst stones. Yeah, no matter how scary it is. Mm. But this story is so encouraging to me because it shows me that if I take the path of Jairus as someone who has power in so many ways, if I take that path, there is healing down that path, mm-hmm. not just for me, but for the entire community. Right. Because it's not just about that woman and Jairus. It's about what Jesus was doing in that entire community where he's upending the power balance yeah. and showing people, hey, this is the person that God is stopping everything for. I mean, because even Jesus was listening to this woman's truth. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the show-stopping woman. Who should we all be paying attention to? Who should we all be centered around? Mm-hmm. And that community was healed in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm. So it goes beyond even just what kind of healing I'm going to get or what kind of healing you're going to get, but really how do we start to heal our world and our communities and our churches? Mm-hmm. 
It's by following this path of Jairus. Mm-hmm. And man, how that can just relate so much to our current culture today. You know, when a woman's voice who's been marginalized, you know, when her voice is amplified, Mm -hmm. the ripple effects Mm -hmm. of change that can happen if we would allow God to work through that. Mm -hmm. It's so, Mm -hmm. it's so current. It's, it's like so tangible for us in 2019. It's amazing. And I also think it's so helpful to name Jairus's dilemma. And the explicit choice that he made, because Mm -hmm. that's a choice that we all have to make. Mm -hmm. We have to decide that opening ourselves up to uncertainty, to even criticism, to, um, you know, perspectives that are different than our own, Mm -hmm. and to the teachings, the teachings of other people, not just listening, but actually learning, being transformed, being impacted. That's a choice we have to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can make a lot of noise about, you know, the things that we really care about, or our own pain or the injustice that we see in our own small communities while also, mm-hmm. you know, having solid cross-cultural solidarity, right? Where we're able to mm-hmm. where we're able to um also hear those stories and be silent like Jairus. Mm-hmm. Listen listen to those stories and how can we relate to that? And how can I come alongside them even though I don't understand it? You know, that grace mm-hmm. and, that, and just, yeah, yeah. the patience even mm-hmm. to be able to hear. And how can I surrender to this wisdom, too? Because as like a formally educated person, I'm like, you know, it's so easy for me to be like, yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still sort of the expert, you know, as opposed <laughs> to saying like, sure. okay, actually, yeah. what what you're saying, I'm not only going to listen, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to mm. like, you're going to change, I'm going to allow you to change my mind mm. on an issue. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, even if, if, uh, if it's uncomfortable for me, um, because that's what interdependence is, you know, it's not just me telling other people what to think mm-hmm. and actually listening to marginalized voices has changed my mind on a lot of things. Same. It hasn't been the academic book that I've read. It's been, no, actually I'm going to practice the way of Jairus mm-hmm. and I'm going to listen to someone who actually experiences this. And they get to tell me what I'm going to think about immigration. Mm -hmm. They get to tell me what I'm going to think about morality. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually entering into those sacred spaces. Yeah. And I think about like today's Me Too movement or again, like Black Lives Matter or, you know, different movements in that way. And a lot of times the, the focus is, and even with one voice, it's about, finding your voice and and getting your Mm -hmm. power back. But I've heard you talk about how that can't be the end point. And I completely agree with that. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that and what reconciliation looks like between the oppressed and the oppressors in a larger context? I know with race, it's a little bit different than something like sexual abuse. I mean, that's very difficult for someone who has experienced that. Mm -hmm. And reconciliation is a huge step. But in a broader context, mm-hmm. what does that look like today? Yeah. You know, when we're talking about equality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like reconciliation is like a dream that, that's beyond justice, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's hard to even imagine it happening now. Yeah. Um, partially because so much justice work needs to be done because reconciliation is really um, – 
um, an equal interdependent relationship between two people who have been at odds with each other. Um, but because of the power dynamic, even between like, you know, someone who's been sexually abused and the abuser or between like blacks and whites or mm -hmm. something like that, um, usually one person is primarily the victim and the other person's primarily the oppressor. So finding a way for there to be justice and equity between those two people is, and those, or those groups is so challenging, which is where we're at. And I think part of the reason why reconciliation, um, is um, a term that a lot of people shy away from is because particularly in the white evangelical church, people have skipped over the justice part and just tried to get to reconciliation. And you probably see this quite a bit in, in your world, which focuses more on sexual abuse when people are like, oh, but you just need to forgive. Like, oh, just forgive yeah. that person. Yeah. They're a person that, you know, Jesus loves them too. It's and, disgusting. Um, <laughs> yes, <sighs> right? Exactly. And that's what happens often with black people or Palestinians or whatever, where it's like, oh, my gosh, like, you just need to forgive. I mean, wow. Jesus yeah. forgave. So you just need to forgive. And uh, don't worry about like equity. Don't worry about like the fact that there are major like like inequality effects, like income, job rates, you know, homeownership yeah. rates. Yeah. Let's just come together at church and sing together, and we're going to bring in a gospel choir, and um, everyone's going to just get along. So, yeah. so I, I love the idea. <laughs> Only on Easter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I love the idea of reconciliation, but we have to fight for justice first. But, mm -hmm. but the reason why I always want to have reconciliation as my end goal mm -hmm. is because I want my heart to be in a place that's compassionate and open to the oppressor. Okay. And yeah. like, because mm -hmm. I'm free then, right? And so I've never been sexually abused. My friends who have been sexually abused, have we've talked about this, and they're like, you know, I may not ever actually reconcile with, with my abuser because reconciliation takes two people. Right. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they might not ever be in a place where they've done the work they need to do right. to be in relationship with me, right? Exactly. There's so, a requirement but, there. But they, mm -hmm. There is absolutely, just like the same way it is for white people. White people have work they need to do before they can actually be in right relationship with black people. Mm. So it's not like I'm, uh, it's not like reconciliation is gonna happen no matter what, but also I have work that I have to do if I want to be, as a black person, I have work that I have to do if I want to be in relationship with the white people who are ready mm. to reconcile. So it's a lot of humility. In the same way that humility, healing, mm -hmm. compassion, mm. Um, recognizing, uh, you know, ridding myself of self-righteousness, mm -hmm. um, getting past resentment. I mean, there's so much that's good for my heart to do the work that on the journey towards reconciliation, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether it, it actually happens yeah. in right yeah, yeah. but um, it's just a I'm healthy free. journey it's, on the way to get there if it journey. ever happened mm -hmm. yeah but always acknowledging mm -hmm. that it takes two because i'm getting sides. free mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and the moment i start you know the moment i lose sight of my oppressor's humanity mm. and and the fact that my oppressor is also made in the image of god the moment that happens i oppress myself mm. What's that look like? 
it's dehumanizing. Mm. You know, I dehumanize myself when I can't see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I dehumanize myself when I can't see the humanity and even my oppressor. Mm -hmm. So it's freeing and humanizing and honoring to myself to be able to do this work of at least seeing their humanity. Whether that means that, you know, we're going to be best friends or not. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah. And, and, as, and as we all know, sometimes it's not safe to do that, you no, know, and so we have not. to be wise. Yeah. Yeah. It usually is not. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, I mean, it's usually it's not. Mm-hmm. Right. But keeping yeah. our eyes set mm-hmm. on the possibilities there, it does something even mm-hmm. just within yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. Good. And it changes, you know, it changes the way I talk about people, mm-hmm. you know, it changes, I, it changes, I, I'm able to see, Hey, you know what? Like, I don't approve of what they're doing. I think they're trapped in a disease of like white supremacy or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can at least acknowledge that they have a story, that they have their own pain, mm-hmm. that they have their own burdens, right? Like yeah. that I'm not more human than they are. That's good. Yeah, and in the and same way that I wish they would recognize my humanity, I want to recognize their humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's so helpful when it comes to, you know, hard conversations. You know, Thanksgiving dinner when, you know, your white supremacist uncle brings up political things and bashes the Me Too movement and you're sitting there feeling like, what now? You know, mm-hmm. but he is still a human. And how can I gracefully excuse myself or how can I enter into Mm -hmm. a conversation and recognize we're both humans and um, what's that going to look like moving forward? You know, conversations Mm -hmm. like that are so hard in this day and age and being able to come at it in that direction feels, feels really good. It feels really healthy. I think it takes a lot of strength. I I think it takes a lot of therapy for those who have been victimized. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is a really Mm -hmm. good, a really good endpoint. And even just, you know, what if reconciliation can never happen? I think your thoughts from the beginning of our conversation of, you know, being a part of social justice and fighting for that, but also having the Holy Spirit as a guide. I mean, we always mm-hmm. have that that kingdom, you know, mm-hmm. mentality of mm-hmm. the here and the not yet. and Yeah, and just the promise, mm-hmm. you know, the promise that in the end it will work out, you know, yeah. um, which is like the promise is the promise of the resurrection, mm-hmm. you know, like Jesus really is making all things new. Mm-hmm. We get to join in that process. Um, but we don't get to control the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we, when I learn to surrender to that, surrender to the process, I start to see little pieces of resurrection in my relationships, in my life, in the communities that I get to interact with. Um, when we're actually looking for it, we see a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and those things sustain me. They really do, you know, um, and they, they uplift in the, in, in the midst of all of the, the pain that I also see. Mm. And um, one of the things I've learned in this journey is that if I'm looking for it, I'll see that there's as much life available to me as death in, in any situation. Mm. Um, but it's a matter of, yeah, learning to look for it. And I, I find that, you know, the more my heart is on a journey towards healing and, and, about, um, and away from resentment, the better able I am to experience the life that's available to me. Mm-hmm. 
And there's so much healing in that, just like being able to just mm-hmm. sit under that and just feel that. That's really great. Just to wrap up, I know you've been on this amazing journey and pilgrimage um, through Europe and things like that. And just um, the idea of God and the feminine, I think for mm. some survivors, that is incredibly healing. And mm-hmm. for, for many, it's threatening. But have you ever mm-hmm. thought about, you know, as you're as you're seeking this, this, um, this understanding and navigating through that process? Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever thought about how that affects even women who've been abused? Yeah, yeah actually, in my book proposal, um, there's a chapter on gaslighting, mm. um, and which I think a lot of um, survivors experience. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and this idea that like your story isn't true or you're making you're making things up or you're making a bigger deal out of things than they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I um, I think that our understanding of God as a white man who's powerful and um, kind of operates like, um, wait, what's the guy who was just who was just confirmed to the Supreme Court? I'm blanking mm, on his name yeah, right Kavanaugh. now. Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, right? We often think of white male God as a Kavanaugh, right? Sure. Or at least like the, the patron saint of Kavanaugh's, right? <laughs> where, where a woman is coming forward and saying, hey, this happened. And all of society, all of power, the power structure in society is basically gaslighting her, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to think about God as a woman or in particular as a black woman, mm-hmm. right? So a woman who knows what it's like to be on the margins, knows what it's like for people to be like, actually, your story doesn't matter. Actually, um, no one really cares about, you don't have any legitimacy here, mm-hmm. um, I think can be really powerful and healing mm-hmm. um, for those of us who have felt like um, we're going crazy, literally, because other people keep saying fire, fire, and they're like, what are you talking about? There's no fire. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. Like, um, and so I think... I'm really excited to continue, you know, to write that chapter. I, you know, I've just, so far I've just done the book proposal, so I haven't written this chapter on gaslighting, but mm-hmm. I'm really excited to write that chapter and to um, have more conversations with people who are specifically survivors of sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. The, the folks that I've talked to a lot as I formed this chapter have been survivors of um, domestic violence mm-hmm. um, and been in churches where for 30 years the church was basically like, yeah, but I mean, your husband's like basically a good person and he like helps set up the chairs every week. So I think you just need to forgive, you know? Yeah. So like they slowly were going crazy in their home thinking, yeah. oh, it must be me, it must be me, right. you know? Yeah. And so a God who not only relates to that, but also firmly stands against that and says, no, mm-hmm. like I affirm your perspective. I hear your perspective. Mm-hmm. I understand your perspective, mm-hmm. I think can be so healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I'm excited to, to read mm-hmm. all of that and to keep up, <laughs> keep up with you. you. Yeah. So yeah. Any mm-hmm. last words of encouragement or insights that you would have not being a survivor, yeah. but caring so deeply for the marginalized yeah. and the oppressed? Totally. Yeah. I think I would say that all of our healing is interdependent, Mm. but at the same time, that doesn't mean that an individual person's pain doesn't matter. 
And so to survivors, I would say your story matters, Mm -hmm. your individual healing matters, and also to the extent that we all are able to hear other people's stories, we're going to be even more healed. Yeah. So good, Christina. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for inviting me. It's so great to connect Mm -hmm. and to share and to listen. And, um, and I'm just, yeah, even just grateful to even be thinking about this next book in the context of those who are sexual abuse survivors. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. We'll keep up the incredible work. I will be watching you every step of your social media journey. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You guys are awesome. Thank you. I'm really honored. Good. Have a great rest of your day. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.